Today's guest is the brilliant Zaretta Hammond, author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. We'll talk about the science behind her recommended six core design principles that she calls culturally responsive brain rules. Later, I'm joined by my colleague, Jerry Mariah, for a continued conversation about practical takeaways. This is To the Classroom, and I'm your host, Jennifer Saravallo. Saretta Hammond, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I'm so glad we can finally make this happen. I agree. I agree. All right. So the first thing I have to wonder is um, whether or not if there is an increased attention on your wonderful book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, and all of your other resources because of this increased attention on neuroscience, cognitive science, and the importance of a science-based approach to teaching literacy. Well, first off, I'm super excited that people are leaning into the science of learning and the science of reading. And embedded in both is, you know, the notion of culturally responsive teaching. It's something that undergirds um, every subject. I was a writing teacher when I was in the classroom, and I understood that my job was not only to teach students proper punctuation and coherence and all the wonderful things, but to also help them become more powerful learners so that they can learn about their own moves that were not working for them and how to manipulate that. So that was a whole process where I had to better understand the science of learning and how to help them become not only metacognitive, but also metastrategic. Metacognitive just means I'm aware of my thinking and processes. They could be some broken processes or missing pieces in the process. It does not tell you how to fix that. And that's where I lift up uh, Ron Rickhart's work coming out of Project Zero, where he talks about this idea of being metastrategic. And that is so rooted in the science of learning, this notion that I have to not only become aware of my learning moves, but I have to learn how to manipulate it. And so I always have wanted to make sure that people understood if the it, only the learner learns. So whether they were trying to improve their fluency, trying to improve their comprehension, uh, stretching their writing stamina so they can get beyond five sentences in a paragraph because that ain't a paragraph. <laughs> and so being able to do that, I had to coach the student, not by telling them, but not by, you know, red marks on the on the paper, but by this dialogic to help them see and then learn to manipulate their own learning moves, right? Step back so that the feedback that they got can be internalized and then acted upon, right? And so this in itself was a whole process. And this is in essence what chapter eight is in culturally responsive teaching, ignite, chunk, chew, and review. How do you help them get to the point where they have awareness and then they want to apply their effort and brain torque, if you will, to this you know, effort we all have of trying to change our learning moves because sometimes they can calcify into habits uh, and we have to break them. So that is kind of the source of, you know, science for me. And honestly, I will tell you the other reason I leaned into science is because despite my success with my students and I start to bring culturally responsive practices in to help them better get the 
the structures and routines where they could lean into their work differently, peer editing. Again, it wasn't just more group work. You know, that's a misconception of culturally responsive teaching. Instead, it was how do you leverage distributed wisdom of the group? And we set up peer editing. You brought in five copies of your essay, distributed them to your pod members. They read them, took them, and then they came back. And then in trios, people, it was a lot of dialogue. It was a lot mm-hmm. of talking, but you had to talk from what we learned about writing structure or coherence, whatever the thing was we were talking mm-hmm. about. So it was kind of this double loop learning. While they're talking about it to better help their peer, they were learning it. So they started to have awareness like, oh, I see where that comma splices in that paper. And he keeps doing that. Like, oh, snap, that's showing up in my paper too, Mm -hmm. right? Despite the fact that for weeks I've been circling it (laughs) with a big red marker. It's like now they can see. So I brought those practices in, but I knew that they needed to have that capacity to do the work themselves, carry that cognitive load. But I needed to coach them, be their personal trainer, be there to guide them, you know, give them feedback on their form, and then set up the classroom as a dojo, right? The dojo in the martial arts is you're coming in to work it out. You know, you're going to practice and you're going to flip and do the kicks and the things and then bring it all together. So that was kind of what I did in my classroom. And I weave together all of these, the science of reading, because of course, you know, writing is just the, 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 you know, cousin, sister, I don't know. Of flip side. Reading. <laughs> yeah. Flip side, you know, code decoding, encoding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the science of learning and then culturally responsive teaching. So it's this kind of Venn diagram of those mm-hmm. things intersecting. So the student became the primary actor. Looking closely at chapter three, I'm fascinated by the neuroscience and cognitive science that you discuss in that chapter. And I think all the listeners could benefit from hearing a little bit about that and how it relates to your principles around or rules, as you call them, for culturally responsive teaching. So we'll start off with like the brain stuff. Can you give us a really basic, like 101 tutorial on what teachers most need to know about? the different areas of the brain as it relates to the learning science. What I try to help people really understand is that the brain science, the science of learning, if you will, cognitive and neural and social neuroscience are there to inform us. But just repeating the parts of it doesn't actually tell us, so what do I do with that information? Mm-hmm. So the core things I think they need to understand, in, and this is really um on pages uh, in chapter three, starting with page 45, right? This is the idea that the brain has a safety threat mechanism, which when we start to think about learning, it is so critical, right? If what we understand about the science of learning is we learn through productive struggle and productive struggle is not just any kind of struggle. It's a struggle that is uh, on the, if we are on the edge of flow, meaning there's challenge, there's skill, but it's just a little into risk and, ooh, ooh, this is stretching me, mm-hmm. right? And so, but it has an element of pleasure in there. 
right? I wouldn't say joy yet because we don't. Competence precedes confidence. And what we do when we stretch ourselves in the learning pit through productive struggle is we actually, you know, fail fast. We are okay. Errors are information, right? This is all of what we have to set up in the classroom. So this information, this chapter is really helping the teacher understand what's going on in the brain. So the cortisol, the amygdala, that's one thing the teacher really needs to understand. Not just like telling the students about the amygdala. They don't care. You want to understand how do I keep that brain calm and ready? So this is now, from the teacher standpoint, understanding creating the right environment. Now, I have to get the student into that learning pit for productive struggle. So there is a little anchor and twist, not bait and switch, right? So you're using that information about how to reduce the cortisol, and you want to up the oxytocin, right? So there are three chemicals that I think are important that I lay out in pages 45 to like 49. Cortisol, this is the stress hormone. We move away from things that are raising our cortisol. Then there's oxytocin. We move toward things that are raising our oxytocin. This is our social bonding brain chemical. We want it. And when we get low in it, we will talk and with others. We'll seek out others. This is why kids turn and you think they're off task, but they're really just feeding their oxytocin. So the teacher actually could be thinking about this. The third, which I think it's underplayed is dopamine, meaning our brains are actually learning machines and evolution has geared it such that there's actually the most yummy brain chemical that gets released when we do hard things. To the point where we'll want to do that hard thing again because it released dopamine in our brain. And this is actually the seed of addiction, right? It is so yummy to our brain that we'll keep doing whatever that thing is, right? And this is what opioids do. They overstimulate the dopamine center. So we don't want kids going down that road. No, just say no to that. But what we do want is as learners... You know, as teachers who are getting the learner to do a new thing, to stretch, to be okay with taking risks, they've got to get a dopamine hit. And the brain has this thing called progress principle, meaning if I see I'm I'm making a little progress, it'll give me a hit of dopamine. Keep going, keep going. And so, you know, the teacher needs to understand that and then look out into the classroom and say, how am I helping the students generate dopamine? They can't generate it on demand. So there's no reason to say, hey, your brain has dopamine. They're just like, okay. (laughs) It's like, you're right. You're telling me that. So the reality is the teacher has to understand these three things. But that amygdala, here's the last thing I'll say about these three. The amygdala gets to run all of the brain if there's a threat. If that cortisol goes too high and it has a reticular activating system that is watching, it's the watcher, that little amygdala gets to override everything and it shuts down learning. This is the intersectionality of when we what we understand by about trauma and trauma-informed practices. Those two things aren't the same, but what connects them is the fact that we want to manipulate that amygdala so it's calm and ready. You can't fool it. So you literally have to be creating a classroom in which that brain can calm itself. What I see is too much of a pedagogy of compliance. That's not Mm -hmm. calm. It's just stressed 
induced compliance. I'll stop there because, girl, I could go on uh, and on and I on. I know. It's fascinating. And it's just, it's so important, I think, that you can kind of look behind the curtain because then we don't see a student's behavior or even a student's performance as something that's unrelated to these things or that's unchangeable. This is so why, you know, inquiry, collaborative inquiry is so important to collective efficacy because just because you got this information doesn't mean you know how to apply it immediately. Mm -hmm. You're now looking in your classroom in a way that you haven't looked before. Videotape is so important for this because you can't slow it down. So unless you're doing some design work, instructional design work ahead of time, and this is not lesson planning. This is, I am actually looking at the interactions of my students in response to that. Who's talking and who's not? This is not about engagement because that's another place where we think, oh, I'm gonna use the brain science to up engagement, right? Just because you have students engaged doesn't mean they're learning. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we've kind of lumped all these things together. So I think that I would kind of uh, uh, push that one step further. How is a teacher being a detective in his or her own classroom using videotape as a partner to act? Or if you have instructional coaches, but even better partner because they can talk back. But you've got to slow it down or you've got to step back or maybe you are kid watching. And I talk about this in the book, meaning you're just tallying something. But you have to assess your current reality versus, oh, this is an interesting strategy that I got at a PD session. So Mm -hmm. I'm now just going to do it. So this is the antithesis of what it means to be responsive. And again, folks lean heavily on the culture part of culturally responsive teaching thinking, oh, it's about anti-racism and, you know, cultural identity being honored versus what do I do when the student is stuck? You know, how do I help them? And if the more I l- understand about how the brain learns, right, and that's why I put those brain rules in there, the more I understand that, the more I can craft responses that are going to help the student loosen that cognitive logjam for him or herself. And a lot of that is on the spot decision making. What's happening with the student and how and what am I going to say back? It's what they call the discretionary instructional decision making and in, in discretionary moments. But the fact is, you have to have anticipated where students are going to get stuck. If you've been teaching fifth grade, you know how fifth grade writers go. You know where they're going to start to venture off. You know the the types of students that come in. They're probably five or six types. So it's not a mystery. This is what you plan for. This is why lesson planning isn't the only thing. You have to plan plan for the type of instructional decision-making. And this is where knowing a student's culture comes in because one of the brain rules is, you know, culture organizes our schema. So all new learning must be coupled with existing learning. Well, if I think culture is only about racial politics and talking about race and racism, I will miss a a core component of the science of reading, which is however I'm experiencing the world is organized through however I was socialized from zero to seven before I came into a school environment from my home environment, my community extended family. So all of this means that the teacher has to understand what is the student, what, what do they have floating in their head that I can toggle and help them better integrate this new information or help them have an aha moment? What do I say? But if I haven't practiced that, if I don't have some kind of 
stuff in my back pocket that over time I've accumulated. Like if you're a teacher in the first three years, you know, we're going to give you a pass on that because that's what you're accumulating. If you seven years in, what you been doing? Because you've got to accumulate this stuff. That's how we grow as educators, right? It's like a, a Olympic coach. The, the reason people come to you is over time, even if you did not place as a gold medal Olympian, if you're turning out year after year Olympians, you have over time understood mindset. Oh, this one has this mind. These are the tools to correct that mindset, but it's mm-hmm. not the only set of tools you have. And this is the responsive piece. And this is what I find teachers aren't getting in their professional development. So let's talk about um, these brain rules. You you talked about one of them before, but I think they're really helpful to talk about one by one. Um, You have these six core design principles that you call culturally responsive brain rules. Um, The first one, you talked about this a little bit already with the amygdala, is that the brain seeks to minimize social threats and maximize opportunities to connect with others in community. Actually, you talked about it with the oxytocin already too, a little bit. If you could elaborate a little bit more beyond what you already talked about. Yeah, I think we are socialized into what is threatening and what is safety. So this is where the culture part comes in. Collectivist cultures, what are the symbols and signs that you would read when you walk into a room that says this is safe, that your brain is reading these signs? It's not because someone's saying it to you, because you recognize something. We all have walked in a room and felt tension, right? And thought, and nobody's saying anything. Like, hmm, what's, this doesn't feel safe for me. Same thing with microaggressions. If you walk into a room, you may be the only Latina, African-American person, and someone ignores you and everybody else is getting service. You're running a program in your head. Mm-hmm. That your brain, um, your amygdala is starting to tell you, like, we're not going to wait too long for you to know this is a dangerous situation. So it is so important for us to understand that culture determines what's a threat and what's safety. White people get socialized to Black people being threatening because that's a dominant narrative in the U.S., right? The assumption of criminality or the assumption of low intelligence or the lack of the belief in the lack of betterment. Those are the three top narratives of racial difference for dark-skinned people, primarily African-American, but wherever you go. In in Australia, it's the Aboriginal. In New Zealand, it's Maori. In other places, you, you have the same, wherever colonization has happened. So my point to you is teachers have to be aware of how they're showing up as not to be sending the wrong signal. This is cross-cultural miscommunication. That's super powerful. And as as a former teacher in New York City schools, I would tell you that my typical classroom would have at least a dozen different cultures represented in it. And I think there's probably many teachers for whom that's true. So what's the practical implication for how a teacher goes about doing this? Well, I write about that in Culturally Responsive Teaching because over time, again, if you're beyond your third year and you're in the same school for a number of those years, you should be keeping notes. What is the culture around the school? If there's Afro-Caribbean, what are the holidays? How people roll? What do they do? And you should be making it your business to take these notes. The children can be 
good partners. So this notion of learning partnerships is just that. How are you studying your kids to actually learn that and understand a few basics of, say, collectivist culture in context, meaning collectivist culture with Alaska Native students looks different than African uh, American students in New York City. So and, and, and understanding that allows that teacher over time to accumulate this knowledge that people who move abroad are expats. It's really not a matter of you having to morph yourself, but how do you help the student actually, uh, uh, how do you communicate across that difference? You get to still be who you are, but most of us have a wider uh, palette of cultural ways of being that we can adjust to, still being ourselves, holding on to our identity, and you know, being authentic. But we understand, oh, okay, if you're from Britain, maybe you, this is what you do. You know, people of color have to be a, students of white people to order to survive, to not get shot, not get marginalized, not get you know harmed in any way. All you have to look is Jim Crow era where it was much more blatant. But even nowadays, this is what the Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd, that minor things, if you don't study and know, then you don't actually can't navigate that. That's what a culturally responsive educator does. I call it widening my aperture in chapter four. What I would add to that is, and practice it. Because mm-hmm. it's not enough to know, and you don't want to reflect that like, oh, I know something about these people. You could still come into that knowing in a very paternalistic way it, versus I actually can adjust the way I do without ever saying a word, but gesturing that. For example, in collectivist culture, the first five minutes are really important. So if you're having parents in, the first five minutes should be social. How are you doing? What's up? You know, a little selective vulnerability then that's using the knowledge and not always taking a learner stance. As some way, you, it's point, you need to be a practitioner of having a wider cultural palette and being able to move in and out of that. Let's talk about the second uh, rule is positive relationships. Of course, it relates to the first one we were just talking about. And there's a tremendous amount of research about positive relationships, but I, I think you bring an interesting perspective with bringing in the brain science as well. So why is it so critical and how does it relate to culturally responsive teaching? It's our amygdala and our RAS, that reticular activating system, that get to determine safety. So it's not by you telling me you're safe. It's by mm-hmm. demonstrating through the things you do that the brain reads the room, right? And so this is why positive relationship that we call, we, our brains have something called mirror neurons, meaning I cross my leg, you cross your leg. You know, it is the way we signal non-verbally, right? Almost 90% of our communication that tells us whether we're safe or not is uh, nonverbal. And so understanding how that flows in a collectivist culture, understanding how that flows when you are helping a student calm their brain because they're frustrated as they're trying to read, right? What does that look like to be able to do that when parents come in? How are you building that partnership with parents? So that those positive relationships are really about that mirroring having those neuromeron, uh, mirror neurons firing. And the, the 
challenge is we can detect when it's authentic or when you're just being performative. And what happens is it just gets worse. The more I think you're performative, the more I think you're being distrustful and sneaky. Mm -hmm. And if I have am a parent who's gone through the same system, which marginalized me and ignored me, I'm already on a defense. I'm already not trusting. So it's really important to do that and build that with parents, with students, particularly if they're dependent learners. Um, Yeah. And so I think this is a lot of our social emotional learning uh, movement has a lot of positiveness here, but I think we need to move the emotional uh, social supports closer to cognition. I'm thinking back to your conversation earlier about productive struggle and how it's critical to get into that zone to be able to learn. And I'm thinking there must be connections between whether or not I feel comfortable enough as a learner to be struggling in front of someone. I've got to trust them. I have to know that they are trustworthy, that, that, that I'm not going to be embarrassed or feel be put down. The science tells us there are trust generators, that there is a way to build trust quickly. And it, again, it's not a performative thing. It's not what I'm saying to you. It's what I'm doing because the brain is always looking and kids are really, really observant. Mm-hmm. And they will smile and they will be compliant because that's the nature of being a child. And, you know, our culture is you are unfortunately, you know, have less authority or power for, for self-direction. So you're at the behest of adults. But kids can read adults really quickly as to their authenticity. So this is why that partnership has to truly be one in which there's trust. And that's the personal warmth and active demandingness. If I help you become more competent, that's trust is built. If I see you in a way in, you know, I see you out and about the grocery store and we nod heads, I don't have to stop and have a chat with you, but it builds trust just the same way that we think we know our barista because we go to the same Starbucks, right? And then we have a little chit chat and how's your day going? It's We need to do that. And we could do that quickly in the classroom, meaning when you help someone become more competent and you're not belittling them, but you're also not downplaying it. Kids, actually, if you don't help them get better, it actually erodes trust. If I'm going all year and I see other kids are passing me and their reading ability and I'm still stuck, I'm looking at you as to say, why are they moving forward, but you're not helping me? So even if you're saying something like, oh, you'll get it. It's nice. It's okay. I don't believe you. Mm -hmm. So trust building is really, this is why the science is so important. What are trust generators? What is selective vulnerability? What is proximity? How do we build rapport? And then move that to the therapeutic alliance, being the personal trainer of cognition, because you'll continue to build trust as you help them get better. Competence precedes confidence. And we all remember that teacher that helped us get over a hump. Like years, you know, Miss Alexander was my first reading teacher. That was first grade. Listen, I'm old enough to be well, well beyond (laughs) first grade. And I remember it like it was yesterday. That these imprint us. And this is why helping children learn to read so that they can become powerful learners is so critical. It's not a technical thing to get our test scores up. You know, it is a relational thing, helping a student actually see their own progress. Like, I'm getting better. 
I think it's so important to underscore how it's we can't lower expectations or make so many concessions to seem nice, right? It's You've got to have high expectations and you've got to show them that they can do it. You have to have this thing called the act of demandingness. This is that I will show you the way. I'm not doing it for you, but I'm coaching. Think Mr. Miyagi. Mm-hmm. Mr. Again, Daniel came, I, I want to learn to, to do karate. All right, go paint my house. Uh, go wax my car. He knew he needed to give him skill. He knew he needed to do in a low stakes way. He knew he needed to keep pushing him only to have him. That was the productive struggle because Daniel at a certain point said, ah, I'm tired of this. I want to teach yep. you that you've been learning all along. And so the fact is high expectations that is not coupled with active demandingness is performative. Mm-hmm. You telling me that means absolutely nothing if you're not showing me how. And and high expectations is not showing someone how. Yeah. Let's move on to the third one. Culture guides how we process information. Um, is well, there anything you want to elaborate beyond what we've already talked I, about? There's so much to say. I think we undervalue information processing. And this is different mm-hmm. than positive relationships. This is literally you know, the effects of cognitive redlining in schools where we saw segregation, and it's still evident, particularly when we look at who's reading and who's not reading. Uh, We know the opportunity to have that productive struggle, to internalize the sound spelling correspondence, to work on word study and vocabulary development, and just all that in a generative way is uh, aided by information processing. And we are not giving kids enough of that and productive struggle and, you know, having things on the working memory where you're chewing on them is key to that. Because again, that's schema and I'm altering and expanding my schema. How do you make learning sticky? Because teachers are covering content, but if the student doesn't learn it, have we actually taught? If they're not so learning in- to read, you know, so information processing, you're, you're saying is the same as when you're talking about chewing on information, having to grapple with the information and getting in the moment feedback while you're working on something. You don't have do to, I have that right? You don't have to get in the moment, but you do have to pull things apart, chew on it, wonder about it. It has to get muddy. You have to understand your confusions. It's just like taking something apart. You know, at a certain point, you're going to put it back together. But, you know, curiosity can drive us. Creativity can drive us. And we'll put it together in a new way. Right. And this is, I like Ron Rickhart's um, uh, thinking routine parts, purposes, and complexities, because that's what we're processing. But too often, we pre digest the content so students don't have to grapple. And for a lot of teachers, they don't know how to organize their classroom where that grappling can happen without them feeling it's on the verge of going out of control. This is why I go back to you have to prepare the dojo right? A dojo has padding on the beams and everywhere. Why? Because people are going to be thrown about. I don't know where you're going to land, right? There's no chalk outline land here. And so therefore you've prepared the environment for it to get a little messy, but it's contained mess. And so this is the piece I find is not happening. And then this is certainly going to connect to four, which is attention drives learning. If that intellectual curiosity isn't there, then that brain torque to actually do the processing isn't going to happen. That's that elaboration stage of chewing. I just can't tell you start chewing. 
You know, that has to be the brain is ignited to actually say, oh my God, I want to understand this. Let me pull this apart. Ooh, ooh. You know, where is ooh, ooh (laughs) for kids when they're learning to read? If I don't hear that, I'm like, "Mm, I'm doing something wrong. There needs to have be some intellectual curiosity popping off because that's the engine, you know, that's the 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 energy and fuel for information processing. How will people learn new stuff? It can't be mm-hmm. all project-based, go and learn and constructivism. The fact is that you have to give them new information. And then you have to do that. Just like Mr. Miyagi, I'm going to show you the moves. There are moves related to this. But we don't have what I call instructional conversation to help the student actually become metastrategic. So direct instruction is about, hey, here's the new information, but I still have to help you choose so you can couple that with your existing body of knowledge, funds of knowledge, schema. So direct instruction doesn't take the place of those operate alongside. Information processing in itself is not going to generate new knowledge. Where will the students get that? So I think Mm -hmm. we set up a false dichotomy. You don't have Mm -hmm. to take students through the whole thing. I call it the theory of the first pancake. Nobody shuts the kitchen down because that first pancake comes out of the looking all jacked up, right? (laughs) Burn on one side, gooey on the other. No, this is the harder productive struggle. The cook says, hmm. I need to heat the griddle a little higher. I need to thin that batter out. Nobody says, oh my God, that first pancake. Shut the kitchen now. And this is what we do to kids. We snatch things back. I'm like, I'll take it. Now I'm going to do this over-scaffolded direct instruction. I think over-scaffolding when we're trying to teach reading without giving students opportunities to grapple. My mother was a library technician. I got the run of the public library. And there were books that were too big for me, but I also knew, ooh, I'm stretching myself. Ooh, look at that word. But that word is kind of similar to this word or this, you know, and oh, it just, it's it's the cognitive workout. Where are our kids getting a cognitive workout? So we should not misunderstand the need for small doses, right? Micro dosing of direct instruction without over scaffolding with opportunities to process information. It's not an either or. And that is the only path to students becoming powerful readers and writers. So much of education is not either or, it's both and. Right? We've got to do both of them. The fifth one is all new information must be coupled with existing funds of knowledge in order to be learned. There have been a couple of guests on my podcast who have referenced Mole's work before, but just in case people aren't familiar, what do you mean by funds of knowledge versus background knowledge or prior knowledge? And um, what, 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 and, uh, what would you like to say about this, this rule? So some people call it prior knowledge, some people call it background knowledge, some people call it funds of knowledge. But when Mull and his associates did that study, they said that we typically ignore the funds of knowledge that students, diverse students bring to class. So it's not something different they have. It's just that teachers aren't tapping it. It's still background knowledge. It's just we discount it as they don't know anything because it doesn't happen to be the um, you know same stuff that we assume should be the body of knowledge from our own cultural orientation or you know individualistic orientation or socialization. So this is again widening the aperture, helping students activate that background knowledge. Like get into what are the funds of what do you know? 
And how do you know that, even if it's not direct, right? And so there is a way in which we still have to honor what kids are bringing because this rule tells us we have to, not because of some, you know, moral, uh, cultural identity honoring. That is kind of, you know, performative doublespeak. It's like the brain has to already couple. If you fail to do that, the student might repeat it, but they're not going to hold on to it. Consolidation in the brain happens 24 to 48 hours after the learning episode. So there's no review and then I'm going to learn it. You learn it and it, it, it integrates into your back, it becomes part of your background knowledge 24 to 48 hours later. So that, so if it's easier for us to come at this through the science, that's why I wrote those things in culturally responsive teaching. And the same holds whether we're learning to write, we're, we're teaching students to rewire their brains for reading, or we're learning math. Yeah, this is learning principles. It has nothing to do with the content necessarily. All right, your sixth one we've already talked about really with, with the discussion of neuroplasticity, which is that the brain physically grows through challenge and stretch, expanding its ability to do more complex thinking and learning. Um, is there anything related specifically to culturally responsive teaching and this particular rule that you want to well, talk about? I would just say that it's all related to culturally responsive teaching because it is not something separate. All instruction is culturally responsive. The question is whose culture is it oriented to? So the reality is these brain rules supersede that. And that's the whole point of information processing. That's the whole point of why you need to know what the student knows so that you know where to couple that new content so they can grind. You know, it's easier if I have some connection to it than if I it's totally new, then we're going to have to find our connections to it. So, yeah, I, I would simply say that, you know, literacy is so related to social neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, and both of those things undergird this thing we call culturally responsive. And I really want people to kind of loosen up uh, uh, the definition. It really is about understanding how the brain uses its existing schema and network of understanding in a way that allows it to take in this new information rapidly and to make it part of themselves and and so that they can keep kind of expanding their their learning power and their agency. My final question for you, given all you've shared, I wonder what advice you have for teachers who have a student in their class that they're not connecting with, maybe a student who's struggling, who's showing us through their behavior that they need something different. Where might that educator begin? I think you begin with intellectual curiosity. I think you have to figure out, the, usually acting out behavior issues are because the brain is bored. Boredom creates the same anxiety that uh, high levels of cortisol and oxy uh, create in the brain, right? And so again, being able to get the brain to lock into something that it finds curious and and this is why you have to know your students, right? Being able to do that becomes so, so important. So I think that's the starting place for teachers to be able to do that. Thank you. Zaretta, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate your scholarship and thank you for your time today. You are so welcome. I am so excited to have my colleague, Jerry Mariah, with me. Jerry, welcome. Thank you so much, Jen, for having me. I loved that conversation. 
Ah, my brain is spinning. It is so filled with inspiration and so many ideas for practical use of the classroom. So exciting. I felt like it was just really helpful. I find the neuroscience fascinating. And I think knowing the the background behind the why of, of what's going on, why kids are you know acting how they are, why they're learning what they're learning or not learning when we want them to be learning. I just feel like it has endless possibilities to inform our practice. I completely agree. There's something that really stuck out to me regarding the brain research, and that's specifically around this notion of ways to stimulate dendrite growth, right? And really thinking about new neural pathways and how teachers can do that. One of the things particularly is how it's so essential for learners to apply their new learning with real deliberate and authentic practice by students doing the work, right? Doing the intellectual lift, really, really giving um, time to do that, which then got me thinking about how as classroom teachers do we provide that space, right? How do we ensure that that happens in a real practical way? Um, So one of the thoughts that just came to mind is being intentional around the ways in which we use our time with kids, which is sacred and, 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 um, limited, Limited, exactly. (laughs) I always make a joke that like in my teaching, sometimes it's like, if I say one more thing now, the kids are going to get it. Well, if I say one more thing and keep saying one more thing, now I've just eaten up the whole period. And now kids don't have opportunities to actually engage in the real work of practice. And to Zaretta's point, new neural pathways might not be strengthening or strengthened or um, activated. So I just think it's, you, it's important to think about time. Yeah. And you get cognitive overload with one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And if you look really critically at a lot of the reading programs or curriculums that are in use today, um, some of them are a little over full. If we're, if we're really thinking our goal is to get kids practicing, working, grappling, chewing, doing the stuff, some of them just have too much that you could, that you could ever cover in a, in a given class period. And it means making really careful strategic edits to what is this lesson going to look like so that I am prioritizing that practice time. And her discussion around the importance of practice that sets kids up to productively struggle not be frustrated and not have it be boring, but that sweet spot of that productive struggle and the important role that the teacher plays in providing feedback during that time, again, has a lot of implications for how we organize our time. How do we make sure that everyone's not just practicing, but that they're practicing with struggle and with really meaningful, valuable feedback? Yeah, this is so big. This is so big. I, I, I was noting as Loretta was talking in my notebook how many times she mentioned the word coaching, right? Certainly mm-hmm. with that reference to Mr. Miyagi and other, other references to the importance of being a personal trainer, right? She, she really sort of thought and, 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 and got us thinking about how our role is to coach students. So, you know, I, I'm, I heavily rely on systems and structures to ensure that there's time built inside of the period for students to get that one-on-one opportunity or maybe one-on-four opportunity in a small group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the conference is just such a beautiful way, not only to build positive relationships but between teacher and student, but also to um, provide that feedback, right, uh, to, to students. This idea of researching where a student's at in the beginning of a conference, really like sitting down and being present, leaning in, um, to what they're doing, 
to what they're doing well, where they need to improve, complimenting, right? I I think, you know, Zaretta talks about this idea of a dopamine hit. Remember that part of the episode? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there's something so powerful about the compliment, um, being a little bit of that dopamine hit right there Mm -hmm. in the conference, um, really teaching into one explicit skill and strategy and then coaching um, along the way, getting them to practice it right there, actual application right there before you set them off to go work independently. Yeah. And I think, you know, when time is tight, and it usually is, (laughs) pulling kids into a small group and doing a lesson around something that the group has in common that they all need, right there, you're building community amongst the students. We're all in this together. You're still giving the individual opportunities for coaching and feedback. And hopefully that time is also full of dopamine hits, right? You're getting it. You're getting it. I'm, I'm raising the challenge. So I think that element is whether it's one-on-one or one in a group of four, um, you can have that same relationship building and that same repeated practice and repeat that grappling, that chewing on content, that information processing together with the really meaningful feedback. Hmm. Another area that, that sort of struck me that, and it's connected to what we're talking about here, but really thinking strategically about the difference between dependent versus independent learners mm-hmm. and more specifically, you know, our tendency at times as teachers to over scaffold um, and how over scaffolding doesn't provide opportunities for productive struggle. And I think that connects, I think that's really critical to think about. And I think it connects in some ways to something she was bringing up a lot in, early in the conversation, which is this um, development of meta strategic knowledge. This was really interesting to me, right? That I'm, and I think, you know, whenever I talk about strategies, I talk about the importance of knowing when to apply them, you're strategic. And if you don't have a little time without someone coaching you and talking to you and telling you to redirecting you, if you don't have the opportunity to to sit and have a little bit of struggle on your own and think, what do I need here? What strategy from what I've learned am I going to apply? What's going to be the best tool for this particular job? I think it just makes another case for the importance of having some alone, I do it, independent practice time carved out and set aside in the classroom. Yeah. I think that alone time to figure it out, to make some, you know, important strategic intentional decisions as a learner is key. And I would add to that, that I think it's so important that they're doing it also in the, in the, in the community of others. Right. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in the context of conversation and talk with partnerships or small groups or um, whole class, even, you know, this idea of talk really being a great place to um, help students process what they're learning or help students connect with others, help students expand on their thinking when they hear new ideas from others. Um, so not only that in, in, individual time, the independent time, but time for students to talk. True story. I was in a um, a middle school not too long ago. And, you know, one of the things I realized was that there were, there were not many opportunities for students to talk with each other. Mm. And in some cases, in classrooms that I visited in a middle school, there weren't any times for students to talk. Like there, there were no times for students to engage with processing the material in which they were learning or for students to connect with others in more of a social context around their learning. And having students be leaders for other, for their peers, I think is so powerful. 
let's say a student has worked on a goal for a long time and they've learned some strategies, they could teach others. They could be a leader. And what a what a way to cement that learning and to um, inspire their peers and to just spread the the learning in the classroom than to have students be in the driver's seat of, let's say, pulling a small group together and teaching their peers something that they've learned or leading a examination of a mentor text and helping their peers notice it. And, and, you know, going back to the brain research that she talks about the importance of social connections and how it releases the oxytocin and that kids crave these relationships and these opportunities to talk with other people. I want to, I wanted to lift up one more point that Zaretta mentioned that just feels so applicable to our work is in, in classrooms and working with kids. And that is to be a detective in your own classroom, right? To show up in a learner stance and to really lean into this notion of kid watching. I love so this important. idea of kid watching. Yep. Um, and that we learn so much by studying our kids. And it's not just about like my knowledge of who the kids are that I teach, but it's also about adjusting what I do based on my knowledge of who they are, um, which I think is so at the heart of what we mean by responsiveness, being a truly responsive teacher and meeting students individually where they are every day, it means that I need to do that work of um, collaborative inquiry, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, what is my classroom? Who, who's in my classroom? You'll add I, that I love that. I, I think that's such an important point, Jerry, that that spirit of being endlessly curious and fascinated by the kids, not just how they're learning, but who they are and, and, Approaching everything you do in the classroom with that stance, I think, is a lesson that we we should all take away from this conversation, too. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And thank you for listening. Please support To The Classroom by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Find out more about me and my work at my website, jenniferceravallo.com. Mm-hmm.